So who do we think this is on screen? Or an image thereof. It's not a very good... Um, I'm afraid the projector would project better. But this is St. Paul on the right. St. Paul, yeah. And this is Timothy on the left. Uh, so who's heard of St. Paul? Paul the Apostle. Yeah. Timothy. Okay. Do we know as much about Timothy as we do about Paul? I'm hoping not, because what I plan to do today is to give you a bit of a historical background about who Timothy is and was. And it's one of the very few times I've ever been glad for world leader in New Testament history, Ian Randall, not to be present. (laughs) But Ian, if you're listening again, we love you, we really do. So, welcome to you all. Um, We welcomed a new member to our church family this morning with a baptism, which was really lovely. And welcome if you're new today or just passing through or visiting, you're very welcome here. I'm Steve, I'm one of the members of the church who are standing in as we wait for our new ministers to arrive. So today marks the start of a new series of six weeks studying the letters of Paul to Timothy. Now these are very short and compact. One Timothy and two Timothy together only come to about five pages out of the 1200 of the Bible. Now although these are very short, they're actually very important to us in Camborne Church today. Because these are the pastoral letters that Paul wrote. He wrote three of them. And what they are, they're letters giving guidance and advice to people who want to run a church. These have strongly guided the development of the Christian church up to now, and they still guide it today. This isn't some historical remnant. People still study these as they try and work out how to make churches work. And they're really worth studying. Maybe some of you don't study the Bible particularly much or read it, but we hope, or I certainly hope, that some of you will be moved after today to take a look at these letters, the whole of them, And consider what they might be saying to you today. They're very short. They're very easy to read. Um, And so as we reflect on getting a new minister, I hope that you can sort of gain inspiration as to where you're going in your life. So this is the setting the scene part. So as part of the background, I'm going to spend a little while explaining about the man Timothy and why Paul was writing to him at all. For some of you, it might be revision, but for others, it might be some useful background which helps bring the letters to light. And I certainly found out quite a lot when I was thinking about this, this sermon. And I should say that most aspects of the history of the church are subject to some or some debate, okay? So I'll just say everything is fact, but be aware there's a caveat that not everything, in some sense, is gospel. If you want gospel truth, you go to this book, okay? If you want interpretation, you go to the internet. (laughs) So, uh, who was Timothy? Although not much is said directly of Timothy himself, he was clearly one of the major players in spreading the gospel into the Roman Empire in Asia. He was mentioned 27 times in the New Testament, and he actually co-authored several of the letters of Paul, at least the Philemon, Philippians, one and two Thessalonians, and maybe one or two others. So these letters which were attributed to Paul are actually co-written in many cases, and he introduces them from Paul and Timothy. And if they're from both of them, throughout the text you'll see the words, we think this, we think that. When it's from Paul, he says, I think. And actually, I didn't realise that this happened. I thought they were just due to Paul, but actually he co-wrote several of the letters. So if you flick to the start of one of these books, you'll see... From Paul and Timothy to whoever they're writing to. And when you see the words I in these books and these letters, you know that he's giving his opinion, his thoughts. When he says we, it's a collective opinion. And when it's from Jesus or the word of the Lord, he will say so explicitly. The Lord says, Jesus said, God says. So um, let's see if this works. I think to understand these letters best, we need to understand how the gospel had been spreading. And you can see this better on the back of your service sheets, but... Paul did three major missionary journeys around the Mediterranean region. And these were really significant. See Crete there, that's 160 miles. So these journeys, I reckon, are about 1,000 miles all told. 
Imagine going on a journey of a thousand miles back then through all these different places. These are serious journeys that Paul undertook. And it's hard to see, but the first one he starts in Jerusalem. And you see just on the middle, there's the city of Lystra. And we think that's where Paul first met the man Timothy when he was a little kid. And Paul was very impressed by the spirituality and faith of Timothy even then. And he was impressed by the family which brought him up in faith. So they met when Paul was going on his on his second missionary journey around. Um, interestingly, about Timothy, his mother was a Jew and his father was a Gentile. And in some ways, this equipped Timothy rather nicely to understand the mindset of both the Jewish people and the Gentiles, which gave him a special thing in terms of the pastoral idea of re- being able to relate to these two different groups. Paul was chosen because he was a Roman Jew, so Paul could appeal to the Roman citizens, and this is one of the reasons I'm sure that God chose him. Now, interestingly, I love this part. On this journey, Paul intended to go to the city of Ephesus, which is in the middle. But as you read in Acts, the Holy Spirit intervened and said, you're not going to Ephesus this time around. And so he took a huge detour and ended up in Corinth before he eventually came back. Which one is it? Third, right, here we go. It was on his third journey that he met Timothy again. He went to Lystra on the side there, and Timothy and Paul got on well. They were brothers in faith. And so Timothy was asked by Paul to come along on his missionary journey. And this is the time he went to Ephesus. Now, Timothy stayed with Paul in Ephesus, but then continued to travel with, with Tim, Paul for some years. And so they traveled widely together. For some years, they talked together, they studied together, lived together, they endured hardship together. Timothy endured some of the terrible things that Paul had to endure in his ministry. And so, given that Timothy knew Paul so well, we have to ask ourselves, why would Paul write him a letter at all, other than to say hello? And there's a good reason. It's because he wanted Timothy to sort out the church in Ephesus. Now, it's really important to realize that Ephesus wasn't some small town or village. It was a huge city. It was one of the largest cities in the world. This is their theater Even today, with all our engineering feats, this is a remarkable object. Ephesus was filled with cultural, important, educated people. Not similar to Camborne, I imagine. And it was in this place, this backdrop, that young Timothy was expected to go and minister. This was the Temple of Artemis. It was the greatest of the seven wonders of the ancient world, according to the guy who who came up with the list. It was very awe-inspiring, and it was central to the worship of Greek gods, Roman gods. And so not only was Timothy in the, in the mindset of people who were very cultured, very urbane, very important, I would imagine, there was also this very strong religious thing. People would come to visit the Temple of Ephesus for hundreds of miles, both to worship, but simply just also for sightseeing. Now, as if that wouldn't be enough, Paul wasn't asking Timothy to spread the gospel itself. He was asking Timothy to stand up to false teachings within the church himself. And this was Timothy's big moment. This was the moment Timothy had to step up to the mark and shoulder the challenging burden that God had planned. And the thing is that Timothy would be alone to do this. Paul was elsewhere. And this is the reason why Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy has this huge task in front of him. Paul had grown the church from scratch and was about to sort of hand it over to somebody. And he writes to Timothy to lay down the charge and to offer some final guidance, some advice and reassurance to his apprentice. So 
For obvious reasons, these letters have been studied by people planting, growing, and leading churches throughout the, throughout the, the generations. And we can learn from these letters from Paul to Timothy, but we must approach the task with some caution because they're not a generic manual. They're a personal message to someone who had lived and traveled and studied with Paul for many years. And although Timothy was relatively young, he was no novice. He was full, mature Christian disciple with a deep knowledge of the Christian message. And it's against this backdrop that Paul writes. He's not writing in a way to explain it to the general population. He's writing to this educated, passionate young man who Paul knows very well. So as we read the letters of Timothy, we shouldn't ask, what does this letter say? We should ask, what does this letter really mean? By considering the letters of Timothy in this way, we might find guidance as Camborne Church moves forward to its next phase of life, growth and faith. So what we do now, that's the sort of scene set, the historical part. We're now going to hear the reading of the first chapter of the first book of Timothy. And then the sermon will follow where we'll unpick some of the ideas that crop up. Today's reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, which is on pages, page 1126 of the Church Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to the myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers. And it is for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the God, sorry, the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out onto me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying, so here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience example for those who would, believe, who would believe in him and receive eternal life. 
Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you might fight the battle well, holding on to faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered the shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is the word of God. Thanks, Lee. So, um, I'd just like to suggest there are a few principles that we need to bear in mind when we look at these letters. The first is to remember that they're from Paul to a cherished, he loved this person, protege, who he knew very, very well. We've got to remember in some sense that Paul's passing on some final advice to Timothy before Timothy starts to work out some of the problems in the church at Ephesus. And we should be wary, I think, of extracting general principles from specific advice. And we should pray for insight into our own lives. So following that reading, I wonder what you felt. Were you thinking of Timothy or Paul? Were you, was there a phrase that stuck out in your mind? Was there a word that really jarred? Was there something else in the passage or something else entirely? This chapter can mean many things to many people. And just for a moment, I'd like to talk to the people next to you as to what that chapter raised for you, if anything. It's tempting just to let you discuss this for 20 minutes and then go home, but <laughs> I feel honour bound to continue. Um, one of my, this is, you'll see where this is going, but one of my favourite piano players is a jazz pianist called Art Tatum, who some of you may have heard. And he was around in the 30s, 1930s, 40s and 50s, and he was a prodigy. He was one of a kind. He was almost a freak of nature. He was able to play anything in any style without effort. And with this legendary technique, he forged a path through jazz, which has never been seen, the light's been seen before or after. And sometime in the 1950s, Art realized that despite being so awesome, he hadn't actually recorded very much of his music. And because he was a man of action, he got down and recorded 12 CDs worth of songs. It took him a couple of weeks. First takes, all perfect. And this is a jewel in the jazz repertoire. And a year later, he died. And I was wondering about this, because how many other greats, as their time draws near, have acted similarly? They realize their time is coming to a close, so they tie up all the loose ends. They write their final memoirs, or they record their final things, or they make amends with people they need to. It happens quite frequently. And as I read the letters of Paul to Timothy, I see, similarly, a passionate man compelled to preserve his wisdom through his thoughts and his ideas. And it's very interesting, because in this short first chapter, we'll see more throughout the next weeks of different aspects, we see a fond, sincere greeting, an expression of love. There's a concern that things aren't working out as hopes at the church at Ephesus. There's a frank and heartfelt admission of great personal guilt and similarly heartfelt declaration of gratitude for his salvation, because Paul did bad things. And there's an urge to focus on the core elements of the gospel. And there's an explanation of the law, how it's to be used and whom it's for. And there's a warning against not listening to your conscience. And there's a final charge or call to arms for Christians to fight the good fight. And he achieves all this in a short space of words. This is a man who is driven to get his message out there, I feel. And the start of 1 Timothy paints the character of Paul as a forceful, complex, and passionate man. And he really needed to be these things. Paul was the instrument that God chose to spread the good news of the gospel and Jesus into Asia and the Roman Empire before Gentiles, kings, and the people of Israel. 
you didn't need a shrinking violet for this task. You needed somebody who would get on and make it happen. Timothy, in contrast, is traditionally understood to be a more reserved character, perhaps even timid, who is afflicted by frequent illness. And was he stressed by this role, whereas Paul would have just grabbed it with both hands and gone for it? But regardless of these differences, Paul loved Timothy as a son, and he respected him greatly. That much is clear. And he doesn't appear to be telling Timothy what he must do, but wisely guiding him, although rather firmly. He says, I urge you to stay at Ephesus. This isn't a command, but a a, a request given out of love. And we know that Timothy will, will, will do it. Now, it's quite complex, these books, because they contain so much information on so many topics. But the thing that really struck me as I was thinking about these sermons was that it represents a transition, a transition in the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus isn't now a startup where Paul's gone and got the thing going. It's an established church with followers. The need now is to ensure that the church goes beyond this phase and runs smoothly in accordance with Christ's will as it grows. The church at Ephesus has different needs, strengths and problems to when it was being founded, and it needs a different pastor to resolve these. Paul moves out, Timothy moves in. So the parallels with Campbell Church are really kind of obvious at this point. Um, and, but rather interesting, we didn't choose this passage for this reason. It came up naturally in the course of, of the lectionary. So I like to feel in some sense that God's holding us in a way that's going to make it work out. You know, the fact we have this passage to talk about today, when we welcome our new assistant minister and, and her husband, and we're about to interview for our new minister, is really great timing. Well done. The one thing I would like to make it clear, though, I'm not suggesting that any of you are following false teachings. Although, as we stand here speaking when we have no minister, it's very nerve-wracking because in some sense I'm giving my take on things. I'm not ordained or trained. So I'm nervous that in fact I am saying things which aren't the right things to say. So it will be very reassuring for me at least to have a minister and an assistant to guide us. And this is why Peter Wood and Ian Randall were so wonderful because they were so giving of their time to help us move forward. Transitions in life. Anyone having any transitions? Other than Linda and Nigel who seem to be having all of them. <laughs> Going to university. A child going to university, retiring, switching jobs, relocating, changes to families, becoming ill, perhaps losing a loved one, maybe even becoming well after a period of illness, or finding love after a period of no love. It's at such points in our journey that we often need advice on where to go. But similarly, if we're handing the baton over to somebody else, we may wish to give advice to that person we love. So what I'd like to think about for a moment, and this is, I'm getting back into our teaching mode, perhaps inspired by our new, new, new guests. Talk to the person next to you. What advice would you have given Timothy if you were Paul? Imagine you in his mindset. You've got a couple of minutes to think about that. What advice would Timothy have welcomed? What was the key message that Paul needed to say? Paul in the background, this image is a lovely one, which in some sense gives a really nice feeling of the situation that's going on. Timothy's stepping forward, looking young and nervous, and Paul's in the background giving the right sort of help guiding him onwards. So, in the old days, like pre-2010, or maybe even <laughs> pre-2000, good advice was, was really hard to come by, as we all know. But today's is very different, because what we have is we have the internet, which gives us advice on all topics. So I Google good advice, see what the internet would say. This is some of my good advice. I thought, what's this is a simple piece of advice. On a Sunday, is it going well? Thank you, God. Is it not going well? Help me, God. This, my faith in some sense is quite straightforward and simple, and this is one of the things I kind of hold, you know. 
what, what simple advice does the internet have? And there were some classics. Um, let's look at the bottom left. There's a picture of Abraham Lincoln with the quote, and it says, don't believe everything you read on the internet just because there's a picture with a quote next to it. <laughs> and Maria said to me, that's my wife, she said, how could Abraham Lincoln know to comment on the internet? Like, <laughs> this is how powerful the message is. Um, life is short, buy the shoes. There we go. I know many people who would go for that one. Do not feed or play with the alligators. Sounds like good advice to me. Um, the less you want, the more you love. Now, often in cartoons, there's an element of wisdom going on. Follow your heart, but take your brain with you. It can be taking two senses. It can be a, a bit of comedy, but actually, I think this summarizes Christianity. We have our conscience in our hearts, but we need to think how we're going to draw these things together. One of the great things about the internet is that it provides an instant forum for us to express our opinions, to share our wisdom. Wisdom. And we can write our blogs, we can leave feedback on our news stories of the day. We can like or dislike videos on YouTube or comment, or we can provide comments on Facebook or Twitter, should we choose. We've all been given as many voices as we need or want. We don't need to wait for the invitation to a pulpit or a street corner to find, or wait for a publishing contract, or, or write to an editor of a newspaper and hope he agrees with your views. We can just get it straight out there. We can instantly comment to the world at large. Another great thing about the internet is that all of the knowledge that you might need ever in your whole life is out there. Handily indexed by Google bots, which crawl around the web, checking all the web pages, checking for links. And so it's all indexed. You search Google, and it proudly always says this, is, this search took 0.6 seconds or something. Google are very proud of how quickly you can get this information. So if, for example, you were considering writing a sermon about Paul writing to Timothy, all you need to do is search on the Internet, and hey, presto, all of the information you'll ever need on the subject is there. And even better, because of copy-paste, you can then translate it to your Kindle or whatever you like very straightforwardly. You don't even need to bother using a pen. This is handwritten, by the way. <laughs> so, the internet allows anyone to become an instant expert. But I suggest that this is expertise at a superficial level. Because this is knowledge without wisdom. Wisdom is a far rarer commodity than simple knowledge. Wisdom takes time to acquire. Wisdom requires a journey. Paul didn't produce his letters by sitting alone in a library. His wisdom was hard-earned throughout his dangerous and difficult missionary journeys and his struggles to convince many non-believers about Christ. But Paul's acquisition of wisdom didn't start once he was blinded on the road to Damascus when he became a Christian. His prior zealous persecution of Christians formed who he was to such an extent that he apologizes again in the letter to Timothy I was the worst of sinners, but I was forgiven. All his life before Christ will have fed into his acquisition of wisdom. So regardless of your faith, whether you believe or don't believe, I suggest that Paul is someone who has earned the right to be taken seriously, to be carefully considered, to be reflected upon. We can and we should ask what his words mean to us today and tomorrow. As I considered the journeys of Paul and Timothy, I reflected on my own journey through life, full of twists, turns, false starts, 
periods of joy, periods of bleakness, periods of health, periods of not health, leading from the front, taking a back seat, being included, being excluded, all of which have shaped me into the person I am today. I was baptised when the church, it was about the first week the church opened here. So I was, I was brought up as an atheist and it was not, it, it was an environment where you were, you were encouraged to be an atheist because religion was so terrible. All these things, I don't forget those experiences, but they've made me a little bit of who I am today and who I see when I look into the mirror. And we're all determined by the journey we take, but who we are determines our journey also. Now, on our journeys, it might be very tempting to compare ourselves to others. So perhaps the new minister might be feeling nervous about comparing themselves to Peter Wood. Perhaps Timothy felt overawed by Paul. But actually, Timothy, with his perhaps timid ways, might have been a far better person to resolve difficulties within the church itself than Paul, who might have been quite abrupt. Although it's tempting to compare yourself to others, nobody will have had the same journey that you've had. You are all unique, precious, and important. God knows this. He loves all of us. Paul's very clear to state, there is no man, woman, slave, or free. We are all one in Christ. Once we strip everything else away, we are alone before God. And this is the heart of who we really are and who we're really meant to be. So here are some images about passing on batons. There's someone ready to go. They're fired up, ready to move. There's some people in a big scrabble trying to get the baton passed across as quickly and smoothly as possible. There's some who have dropped the baton. Someone saying, where was it? Ah, oh, you know, all this has gone wrong. There's a clean transition. These are perhaps more theoretical than practical, but you could imagine it all being planned, your transition in a nice, clear way. But no matter where we've been, where we are, or where we hope to go, the unchangeable God will have been with us always and forever. And no matter what's happening, no matter which of these applies, the miracle is that we can turn directly to God for guidance and nourishment through quiet, heartfelt prayer both collectively as today, in small groups or as individuals. Now, prayer isn't like a Google search with instant results displayed on screen. Its results are far deeper, far more meaningful and far more wise. And we can always trust it. That is the best thing. Tailored precisely to who you are, the unique you and the unique situation. So as we welcome new members to our church new members to our church family, our new assistant minister, and prepare for our new minister, we can all be guided by Paul in the first chapter of Timothy. And for each of the points Paul raised, we can learn something. First and foremost, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Our church family goes beyond the biological family. It's a joyous extended family to which we will soon be welcoming a new head for which we'll be grateful. And we should all be concerned for this family. Tend for it, care for it, all of us, for all of us. We should remember that love is the heart of the gospel. And we should ensure that we don't stray from this. We should know the commandments. We should keep our conscience clean, because that's how we were born to be. And finally, we should all fight the good fight, whatever that fight is for you. Whatever that means for us as individuals, our mistakes of the past shape who we are today. It doesn't matter so much what we did yesterday. It's what we plan to do today and tomorrow. Amen.